0: Inspired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host,
1: David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 163 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show we'll be discussing the way that video games are portrayed in books and movies, and I'm joined by four guests. So first up we've got our producer John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Wastelands 2, Operation Arcana, and The End Has Come. So, John, welcome to the show. Good to be here. And also joining us today is Daniel H. Wilson, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 41, and our panel on robot uprisings in episode 107. He's a New York Times bestselling author whose novel Robo-Apocalypse is currently being adapted for film by Steven Spielberg. Together with John, he co-edited Press Start to Play, a science fiction anthology about video games. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Chris Avalone. He's worked on many popular games, including Planescape Torment, Fallout 2, and Knights of the Old Republic 2. And his recent projects include Obsidian's Kickstarter RPG Pillars of Eternity, and In Exiles, Wasteland 2, and Torment, Tides of Numenera. His short story, Endgame, appears in John and Daniel's anthology, Press Start to Play. So, Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, David. I appreciate it.
1: And finally, we've got Mickey Nielsen, lead writer in publishing at Blizzard Entertainment. His game writing credits include World of Warcraft, Starcraft, and Warcraft 3, as well as the best-selling World of Warcraft graphic novels Ashbringer and Pearl of Pandaria. His short story, Recoil, appears in Press Start to Play. So, Mickey, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, happy to be here. Okay, and so I want to start and talk about how gamers themselves are portrayed in books and movies. Because it seems like there are basically two ways that gamers are portrayed. Either they're the best gamer ever and their game skills are somehow necessary to save the world or something like that. (laughs) Or the fact that they're a gamer is just used as a shorthand to show the audience that they're a total loser. Or some combination of those two. And so it doesn't seem like there's a great deal of variety to how gamers are portrayed, particularly in movies. So I just want to throw that out to John. Uh, What do you think overall? How do you feel as a gamer about the way that gamers are portrayed in in movies in particular?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's usually pretty kind of depressing, uh, you know, because it is so um, either or, like you say, those two options. Um, Although, I mean, I think uh, Scott Pilgrim sort of subverts that a little bit uh, where it's like, you know, well, Scott Pilgrim seems to be just a regular guy. Uh, he, I mean, except for the fact that he ends up having, like, sort of video game-esque superpowers at some point, but, I mean, as far as a gamer, as being a gamer goes, he's just, like, a regular guy, uh, but, I mean, that's definitely the, um, exception rather than the rule, and, you know, like, the fact that he has, like, these superpowers and stuff isn't, like, saving the world or anything, it's just to you know, fight for his, you know, his girlfriend or whatever, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's sort of depressing that we can be this far along in the history of video games that uh people haven't come up with uh, more um creative portrayals of gamers uh and yeah you know it's like it of course it's always insulting when you see them um just being used as a shorthand for oh this guy's a loser or you know this just this guy's just some stupid nerd, and you know he he won't amount to anything
3: either that or they use it to portray it as a weakness that the character has right like uh or a loss of reality. Like, you remember the beach when Leonardo DiCaprio totally loses his shit and he's running through the woods <laughs> and everything starts to look like a video game. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, I challenge, can anybody think of a positive portrayal of video games being used as shorthand to like indicate like positive attributes for a character?
4: I think, uh, last Starfighter, it, granted, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, and I guess Tron too. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on with Tron.
1: I mean, like Chris and Mickey, you guys both work at video game companies. What is the attitude kind of around the office to movies about video games? Like, if a movie like Pixels or something comes out, are people excited to see it, or are they like, "Ah, oh, crap, not this oh, again"?
0: Oh, they, you know, they actually, they feel more obligated to see it. Like, uh, we, we we used to go off on conversations about Grandma's Boy all the time, <laughs> in terms of like, "Wow, that's like no QA department I've ever worked with," and then like. Then they'll critique all the nitpicky aspects of, like, the programming jargon they're using in the movie and just stuff like that. But generally, as part of the culture, you feel like you, you
4: sort of have to see those movies. For Blizzard, we actually had, when the company was smaller, we would have movie days where, you know, if there was a movie coming out that uh, related to video games, uh, the whole company would go and see it. And they would just do that. So, but... We also did that for, you know, geek culture in general. The whole company went to see, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, Star Wars episodes one through three, all, all those kinds of things. Uh, we'll all go and see it, but same kind of thing. Like it, the employees there, you know, it's, it's, we have to go see it. Everybody feels like, okay, we need to go see it and then talk about it and either praise it or pick it apart. Um, and, and usually there's a lot of picking apart that happens. <laughs> um,
1: all right. So we mentioned uh, The Last Starfighter, and I, like probably other people, I haven't seen that since it first came out, but I remember it being quite good. I would probably list that as, you know, one of my favorite. Uh...
0: Uh, David, I don't go back and watch it. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I, I actually I actually have a, a, a last Starfighter syndrome is where, wow, the memory of that was so good but it just doesn't hold up when you watch it again. There are some movies that hold up really well. Last Starfighter is not one of them. Do not go
3: back and see it again. Just, yeah. just Well, there's another slightly down. similar variety of movie where it's not the same thing as don't go back and watch it again because it'll be terrible. It's be sure to watch it before you turn eight years old <laughs> or else it will be terrible. And it doesn't matter like – because I have little, I have young kids. i got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And I'm, I'm hitting them up with Labyrinth and Neverending Story and Dark nice. Crystal. And that shit is awesome. As long as you, like, are younger than eight, it is like you're transported to a new world.
2: Yeah, actually, Tron is another one, like the last Starfighter, I think, where it's like, okay, well, when you're a kid, you see it and it's great and it's amazing. And you think about it your whole life about this legendary film that came out in the 80s, you know, and then you go back
4: and you're watching it, like, oh, my God.
1: See, see, I always thought Tron was boring, even as a kid.
4: Oh okay. <laughs> I watched the original with my daughter and what she'll do is she'll pick apart special effects. If the special effects are not up to snuff, then she'll check out. And so unfortunately with Tron, she went through the whole thing. Uh we both love uh the latest one though that came out. So
3: so beautiful. Jesus.
4: It was. Yeah, and the music was amazing.
3: I listen to that soundtrack while I write all the time.
4: Yep. Yep. And they did too, and they're both good. Two soundtracks.
1: So so then going forward on my list, the next thing chronologically I have, I think, is Gamer. Which Oh
2: I- no, we skipped over one of the major ones, Cloak and Dagger, man. Yeah. Did you ever see that, Dave?
1: I don't think I've ever heard of that.
2: Oh my god! Oh man, it's got um, it's got the kid from ET, and uh, was it Dabney Coleman? Is that the the older guy? is? Yep. Uh, Yeah. So it's like uh, there's a Atari game called Cloak and Dagger that like is actually like part of some uh, spy plot. It's it's I'm sure it's terrible to revisit it, but I mean it was very formative to me. And
0: and Dabney Dabney Coleman in that is that he's actually like a virtual character that accompanies the kid, right? Is that
3: correct? Yeah, I'm um, oh, wow, not sure if ago. the kid is imagining him but he's a spy that sort of helps the kids survive. That movie it's definitely for kids and it's like a wish fulfillment type of a movie like what if you got a video game that had super secret information and you got to become a spy but like within 20 minutes of that movie they fucking shoot the, the nerd computer store guy like in the face is
0: like he's dead. <laughs> it was it was a
3: darker time. It's back like then. shocking, you know? <laughs> and just, like in the 80s they would just throw like titties or like some guy getting shot in the face like into anything. They just didn't care. It was great.
2: Uh one of the things that I I thought was funny, so, you know, like this this past year I've been a judge for the National Book Award uh for the young people's literature category and so I've had to read all these YA books. And I was, I've actually been surprised how, like, I mean, I don't think any of the books that I, that we've actually considered were about video games at all, like, or even mentioned video games, like some, like some of them deal with, um, you know, modern technology, like, so like the internet and, and texting and everything like that, but not as much as you might think. And so I thought it was actually kind of really interesting in the context of this panel that it's like, huh, out of all these books I had to consider for the awards, like none of them like dealt with video games in any meaningful way at all.
3: It's almost like video games are given short shrift, and in, in reading in books, you know, given their stature in pop culture. Yeah. I wish someone would make an anthology of
2: short <laughs> about <laughs> these
3: games.
1: That's brilliant. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to we'll get to that later. But I mean, no, but John, I totally agree with you because just even coming up with uh, science fiction novels that really engage with video games in some substantive way for this panel, I was having a much harder time coming up with good examples than. I thought I would. I mean, I could come up with lots of examples of virtual reality where people are in some sort of simulation and they're having an adventure in it. Mm-hmm. But things that actually, you know, that you would have to have actually played games and no game culture to have written. Uh, there, there weren't a ton that I could come up with. I mean, You by Austin Grossman, um, Ready Player One and Armada by Ernest Cline. Uh, I haven't read it, but Lev Grossman, I think, wrote a novel along those lines. Oh, yeah. I, I, I couldn't come up with a ton of examples.
2: Uh, John Darnanel, uh the lead singer of the Mountain Goats. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, but um, he wrote a book called Wolf in the White Van. Uh, I haven't read that, but it, it apparently deals with video games. Um, and then there's also Lucky Wander Boy, which is, uh, you know, seems to be like the sort of the go-to before Ready Player One came out. It's like it's like this is the the great American video game novel uh, by D.B. Weiss, who's one of the co-creators of Game of Thrones. Um, I have a little description of about something from it, um, from the game in the book uh, that Topless Robot did, but did, has anyone actually read this? I haven't actually read the book.
0: I have not, but now I want to.
2: Yeah, so it sounds really interesting. So Topless Robot, uh, which is a website, um, described the game in the book as an expensive, short-lived arcade bomb. The Lucky Wonderboy game starts off as a regular jump and dodge affair similar to Donkey Kong or Popeye, with the first three boards growing increasingly hard and abstract. Then players find themselves in in the second world, a vast graphically immersive desert where Lucky Wanderboy roams about uh collecting items and never encountering never encountering enemies. There's a third world that no one apparently has ever reached, but the protagonist came so so close when he was a kid. Now he's obsessed and the truth about Lucky Wanderboy is either hilarious or transcendent depending on which of the book's fractured endings you believe. So it's like I mean, dude, I totally want to read that after reading <laughs> that. And I, th- I thought it was really interesting that, you know, it's like, oh, D.B. Weiss, you know, he he wrote this, like, novel that's actually really, you know, well-loved by by people who read it, um and it's like, I I mean, I hadn't heard of him before Game of Thrones, so.
0: That sounds like you did a lot of quiet time after finishing that, just to process it. That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did anyone else have uh, examples they want to list? the
0: uh, One of my uh, friends, uh, Richard Dansky, uh, he wrote this book called Vaporware, which, uh, I was a little skeptical about because whenever one of your friends writes a book, you you have this this horrible feeling like, oh, God, you know, do I tell him I actually read it or not? Like, you know, do I compliment the cover art? Like, what do I do? <laughs> uh, but but uh, it turned out that uh, it was fascinating. But I think it might have been because after working at game development, so much of vaporware was like an inside look into that. And then he added a horror element on top of that. Where basically the premise is there's a game that refuses to be canceled, and then how it affects the entire company bit by bit, and that no no pun intended, but uh, <laughs> it was it was really great. I I wonder if I enjoyed it mostly because it's pretty accurate in terms of how the game development process works, in terms of like you know here's how the departments are arranged, here's what your producer does, here's what a creative director does, and all the all the miseries that come along with that. Like they were all it was all just spot on, but it was a, it was a really good read. I felt. A little voyeuristic while reading it, but man, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was quite a read.
4: There's a book from a a newer author, Janice Davis. uh, It's called Holder's Dominion. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, And she wrote this book because her husband was working at Blizzard and he was gaming all the time and she was trying to get into gaming. And she was actually looking, because she was a big reader, she was looking for a book that could kind of immerse her uh, in gaming culture as well. And she couldn't find anything. So the more she played the games and, and got to actually understand gaming culture, she decided that she would write her own book. And so it's from the female viewpoint, uh, and it's about an MMO, and it's it's got a female protagonist in it and what she's going through learning to play the games. It's It's actually very interesting.
3: I'm looking at all my books on my shelves, and I'm trying to find one. And the best I can come up with is the Red Dwarf novelizations, which contain like large chunks of the the crew of the Red Dwarf interacting with Better Than Life. Um, do you guys remember this? Any Red Dwarf fans? I remember the show, but I didn't know they did novelizations. Oh, yeah. No, they're hilarious. The, that's how I got into the show, actually, is I found a paperback that had the cover ripped off uh on a beach somewhere <laughs> and like and read the whole thing and got to the last page and it ended mid-sentence and i thought yeah. oh shit well i'm gonna go back home and i'm gonna buy the book and then i'll read it from beginning to end and then i'll read the last few pages you know <laughs> um and then of course i realized when i had read it again that it just ends mid-sentence <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> damn you um but yeah but they have this thing called better than life which is basically virtual reality that's immersive And you can have anything you want and kind of, you know, predictably what happens is all of their worst inner impulses are rewarded and kind of come to the forefront and they all end up in what should be their own unique utopias suited for their personalities, but which ultimately become their own unique hells uh, because all of their horrible needs are catered to (laughs) or desires, I should say.
1: Uh, so, are there any other like good things people can recommend? I mean, uh, I have some other movies here that are more recent. I mean, John mentioned Scott Pilgrim. I really like that, mm-hmm. uh, and Wreck It's also
2: a comic, obviously. So.
1: Right, right, uh, and Wreck It Ralph. I haven't seen that, but it looks pretty oh, good.
2: Yeah, yeah, Ralph- Wreck It Ralph's really good.
0: Yeah, Wreck It Ralph is definitely definitely worth watching.
2: Yeah, and it has it has um a, a really cool like it's um basically they they play Mario Kart essentially um but it's like a different version of Mario Kart and it, it's it's really cool how they um. You know, make that work in the game. But of course, I mean, you know, the, the whole premise is that all the different, you know, video game characters from the different arcade games and stuff, like, they sort of go to this, uh, other world when they're not working in the game. And, you know, they can interact with each other. And so, like, you know, uh, the main character, Wreck-It Ralph, which is like an old 8-bit type game, you know, sort of like Donkey Kong type of game, um, you know, he ends up, like, temporarily in, like, a Halo type game and a lot of kind of things. So, yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, it's one of the best treatments, uh, of video games in film for sure.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I mean the the biggest challenge in that movie the characters face is they, you know, they don't want their game to go on the fritz or have their actual game be forgotten about because at that point you sort of lose your identity in your life. There's really nothing quite like seeing a homeless Cubert in a game, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Wreck-It Ralph has a lot of really good moments like that, and uh, yeah, it's one of, my, one of my favorite movies.
1: I mean, does it take any kind of... I haven't seen it, as I said, but does it take any kind of stance on whether old... Coin op games were better than modern Call of Duty type games or anything like that?
0: You know, um I did think the moment when uh th- actually they don't. Um uh, they they portray classic games as, you know, they're you know, pretty much they're still fun to play. They're a little bit, you know, simplistic in some parts, but overall there's there's stuff there's iconic stuff to love about them. But I will say the the sequence that John was talking about where uh where Ralph ends up in a Halo style universe. I did sort of feel that that was speaking to the parents in some respects, that a kid would not necessarily be jolted by that, but I think sometimes I was getting the impression this is an adult's perspective of what they see when they look at Call of Duty or Halo, is all this insane uh, action going on and horrible things taking place and urgency and adrenaline spikes that actually didn't seem like much fun, it just seems terrifying. And that's the perspective Ralph takes when he's actually part of that simulation so i think that was a little bit of a judgment call but uh it was an entertaining sequence so i you know i can't you know argue with it that's
3: interesting i mean i haven't seen wreck it ralph but like pixels and these movies i feel like hollywood is just sort of cynically positioning the movies to to take advantage of nostalgia from like 35 to 45 year olds for like 80s arcade games right um is that what it's doing? I mean, is it just, has it been long enough now that they can just use it as a resource to exploit?
2: That's what Pixels feels like. I, I don't think that Wreck-It Ralph uh, can, you, I don't think that's a fair cop for Wreck-It Ralph because I think it, it's it's very loving about it. Um, and so it's like, of course, yeah, it is playing on nostalgia, but I don't think that it's the cynical um, sort of take, that, like you're saying. I mean, but Pixels does feel like that. I mean, I haven't seen Pixels, but, um, you know. Everything that I've heard about it, it's like it sounds like it's so terrible that I, I I want to avoid it. I think
0: for the nostalgia aspect, though, when you I mean I think uh, obviously the, that that era of of video games I think would you know probably help convince adults to take kids to see a movie like that because they recognize more of those characters and kids know enough about video games to understand the thrill of giant you know evil avatars suddenly you know attacking the world. That's great. They're like you know giant pixelated dinosaurs, but I I think the fact that you they used '80s versions for that. Also, could help bring adults to the theater and take the kids as well, and make it make it a little bit more endurable. Even though I, I don't think that actually necessarily worked with Pixels.
1: Uh, I mean, I did mention this movie, Gamer, earlier. I never got you guys' reaction to that. I remember it being more int- like it's kind of a it's a dumb action movie, right? But I remember it being kind of more interesting than it needed to be. But it's twenty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so maybe I'm just rem- I have like a slightly uh you know kind memory of it. But I'm just curious if anyone else saw that if they have any reactions I... to it.
0: I I saw it and I uh, you know I actually had uh, the same reaction you did where I, I felt like they they could have actually taken an even easier road out but they actually did take some time to okay well you know here's the uselessness of banning people and you know multiplayer online games and then then they, they had they had like really horrific takes on it like where it's you're like wow he, that guy shouldn't be banned like he should be removed from the world. Uh, but but no, I th- I actually thought it was uh you know from a game development standpoint, which is unfortunately how sometimes I, ju- I judge movies. Where I'm like, oh, that made a, that made a good video game. It's, you know, it's a a good game mechanic. Uh, well, not a great movie, but I was still glad that I saw it.
1: Yeah. So the premise, if it people don't know, is basically that real people, either if they're death row inmates or poor people, they have to make themselves players for other people to control in various types of games. Uh, And so the death row inmates become, you know, sort of the first person shooter type players where they're they're actually getting gunned down. Uh, And I thought there was some pretty decent social commentary in it.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounded interesting. And then um, I had seen the trailer. I was like, oh, that kind of looks I'm kind of skeptical about that. And then I heard a bunch of like terrible reviews. And so I never saw it. But, um, you know, coming into this panel, like I was trying to come up with different things for us, you know, to what we would talk about. And I came across mentions of it and I was reading about like, you know, the, the fictional fictional game in the in the movie which i guess it's called society and so it's and they it's sort of described as like sims but real people um but i guess there's different games i mean cuz if if, they, if you have the first person shooter ones as well but um and so like there's videos online of like it's like an interview with the creator of the game and it's uh played by the guy who played dexter um and it's like it's the those videos those one-on-one interviews with him in the movie it's just like it seemed like so bad like it's like wow he is so miscast <laughs> as that person like i don't know i i can't even it's like i was i was sort of interested to in maybe go check out the movie and then i watched that thing and i'm like nah eh, maybe not
1: another thing i wanted to talk about is just i would like like i said i was kind of surprised given all the science fiction writers I know who are so addicted to games that there aren't more novels about games explicitly. But there are a bunch of novels, I think, that were heavily influenced by games. And the two best examples I was able to think of was uh, Ian M. Banks was apparently highly, highly addicted to civilization. Oh, Oh my
0: God, Player of Games.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my
0: God, that book is so good. Actually, oh, my God, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, I recommend that to my... uh... To my friends, whenever they want to start Ian Banks, because I, I, obviously a lot of game development uh, acquaintances, so I'm like, you have to check this out, because the social commentary in that book and the whole obsession that he has with this culture's game and how to... Because the premise of the book is um, uh, there's a huge like, Federation-style uh, spanning society called The Culture, and they are presumably very enlightened. And what they do is they send emissaries to various planets and some of those planetary societies have a lot of potential problems they could offer the culture if they're not contacted correctly and the one planet this emissary goes to their entire society is governed by how well you can play this very complex uh game with very, very high stakes where the stakes can result in various humiliations towards your opponent, like you know excising you know parts of flesh like putting them in a compromising situation. Like, it just gets worse and worse and worse. But the ruler of this world is supposedly the, the supreme master of this game. And it's a very simple, you know, potentially, you know, cliched premise, but you read it and it's fantastic when the, his perspective, just how, how immersed he gets in this game, you can actually just, and, and the ending is fantastic. It's, I love Ian Banks and the, and the world is, is sadder for his passing because his writing was just absolutely fantastic
1: yeah so i strongly suspect player of games was influenced by civilization but i couldn't find an explicit quote to that effect but i did find a quote that um accession one of the later culture novels was explicitly inspired by civilization it's basically like if you were a super intelligent ai what would you do and you would play like a million versions of civilization all day long and see how see how things (laughs) turned out um there's also a funny quote what he was doing (laughs) There's also a funny quote I came across where it said that uh, he had to announce at one point that one of his books was delayed because he had done nothing but play Civilization for three months and, uh, <laughs> and had gotten behind on his writing. Um, and then the other example I was going to give is apparently when Salman Rushdie, when the, there was the fatwa against him, when you know, a, a religious uh, fanatics wanted to kill him because of a book he had written and he was in hiding, uh, he apparently had nothing to do all day but play Super Mario Brothers. Hmm. And so he was just playing Super Mario Brothers all day long. And he wow. later wrote two kids' books, um, Harun and the Sea of Stories, and Luca and the Fire of Life, which are inspired by Super Mario Brothers. The second one, apparently, more so than the first, but it involves like people punching uh, objects and having coins come out and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know, it's very uh, explicitly inspired by Super Mario Brothers. Cool. I mean, John, do you know anyone who in the field who plays a lot of games and you can see the influence of those games in their work?
2: Hmm. I mean, I definitely know a lot of people who play games. Uh, as far as the influence, um, yeah, I mean, no, nobody immediately comes to mind. Uh, I mean, except for, you know, the, some of the people who've already written stuff about it. And, and I mean, people who are uh, maybe in the anthology.
4: Doing the publishing at Blizzard, I've, I've definitely come across a lot of writers who have said that they were inspired, uh, not just by Blizzard's games, but by games in general.
2: Oh, well, and I thought of one, uh, like a very obvious one, but uh, Hiroshi Sakurazaka, uh, who wrote um, the movie that, uh, or he wrote the book that uh, Edge of Tomorrow was based on, uh, it's called uh, All You Need Is Kill, um, the original book is called that, and so, I mean, like, if I don't know if you, if you guys have seen the movie, but it's like, people, uh, reviewers kept comparing it to Groundhog Day, and I'm like, no, it's not Groundhog Day, it's a fucking video game, like, it's <laughs> so obviously, yeah. like, it's a save point, it's like, he reaches the save point, and then when he dies, he goes back to where the save point was is
0: it's like is not the new title is it the new title of it like uh uh, but, uh live, live Die or, Repeat Yeah Live Die yeah, Repeat
2: Yeah Live right. Die Repeat Ed, which is a tomorrow. much better title.
4: Yeah. Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow was the movie and then it, the packaging is confusing because it just says Live Die Repeat yeah. all over the packaging.
3: That's a great movie though.
4: Yeah, yeah yeah.
3: Was, yeah, yeah. I love it. I mean,
2: I think they're trying to rebrand it. They're trying to retitle it without actually confessing that the original title was terrible. So they're trying to put them <laughs> all on there, and they make the title confuse which one's which. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a terrible title. It's like so bland, uh, you know. So I was I was really mad about when they retitled it from the book. I mean, admittedly, the book title is kind of like eh, it doesn't it co- doesn't quite work, and it's like kind of not grammatically correct, whatever. But I mean, it's like it's it's interesting as opposed to Edge of Tomorrow, which is bland.
3: It's a memorable title.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and Mickey, how about, I mean, you mentioned other writers at Blizzard, but how about yourself? Could you say, just speaking for yourself, what games have, did you play that, would you say, influenced your writing the most?
4: Yeah, for me, it was uh, Adventure Games was the big thing. I loved Adventure Games. Right on, yeah. Yeah, you know, Monkey Island <laughs> and all those. I mean, some excellent writing in those games and so immersive and so much fun uh, really inspired me. Um, other than that, it's my inspirations were more comic books and Dungeons and Dragons and, and arcade games. Um but early on early on Doom was, you know, it was maybe not as much of an inspiration as a, a time sink for me. <laughs> I was just playing a lot of it at the time and, and really starting to get into uh first person shooters at that uh time, Descent was a, another Yeah. Really fun
0: oh, one. Oh wow.
4: Yeah, yeah,
0: the more Mickey, it, it, I was, I was so terrible at descent. They would. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually just changed my uh, handle to Cannon Fodder, and they would actually, take, they would actually take turns hunting me down during lunch and just killing me for the fun of it. I was just <laughs> so I was so bad at it, but I loved it so much. It was a great game.
1: I I just wanted to ask, Chris, do you have any other um, games that really influenced your writing that you want to mention?
0: Oh uh, yeah, actually, uh, the Infocom uh, text games had a big impact. Notably, uh, there, was a, there was one called Infidel. Which I thought was an amazing interactive narrative experience. It was like a great adventure game, and the ending was so brave that I I actually still cite it when doing uh story art presentations for games. Uh, we actually used it as recently as Fall at New Vegas. Oh nice. And also um there was another info game called Lurking Horror, uh, which actually was inspiration for the short story in uh uh Press Start to Play, where I'm like, this this is just text. But the entire sequence of this adventure game is just terrifying the hell out of me. And uh that, those those were two that that really jumped out.
1: Well, speaking of Press Start to Play, why don't we talk a little bit about that? So uh John, why don't you tell us about Press Start to Play?
2: Oh uh, yeah, so it's um it's a anthology of uh stories inspired by video games, and so uh we basically uh challenged writers to um come up with uh, Stories that recreate the feel of a video game in prose form or to, to play with the concepts, um, that are common or exclusive to video games, like save points and leveling up and that kind of thing. Um, and then, um, and then also stories about the, like, the creators themselves. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we have, uh, let's see, about 25 stories or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, as you noted it earlier, we, uh, I co-edited this with Daniel H. Wilson here and, um, Uh, Feel free to jump in, Daniel, if you want
3: to say more stuff. Oh, and we also encouraged uh, the authors to use titles that were from, you know, plucked from the video game terminology. So we have stuff like Respawn and NPC, and I wrote one called God Mode. But like a lot of them ended up being like uh, taken straight from that. And so you can just kind of see that the video game fingerprints are all over these uh, stories. And, you know, part of... What's interesting is thinking about the background of the person who wrote the story, and that's why it was really fascinating for us to to pull people in from the video game world, who you might not usually see in an anthology of science fiction short stories. You know.
0: By the way, uh, uh, Daniel, you are like uh, you are one of the uh, nicest editors I think I've ever (laughs) worked with. Uh, Daniel has this really rare quality where uh, he'll do the the job of an editor, but then he also makes sure that he gives you feedback on what he thinks is really working and you shouldn't touch or things that he really likes. And I will say like going back and reading the story after the edits, I actually got more inspired and more happy. So you were giving me a morale boost while I was going through like, oh, that didn't work Oh, <laughs> oh that I, did uh, say it. That was good. So I, I appreciate that. So thank you for that. I
3: get edited a lot myself. And uh, the harshest editor for me is typically my wife. <laughs> and uh, And that's the first hoop that I have to jump through is to make her happy. Because she doesn't give a damn about science fiction or any. She's not, uh, we're not cut from the same cloth in that regard. Uh, but what I have taught her over the years, like be- through begging and pleading, is to just, for God's sake, like, just tell me what your favorite part was. <laughs> so that I have that so I can put that in my pocket, you know, while I rewrite the whole other rest of the thing. Um, she calls it, she's a psychologist and she calls it the shit sandwich, right? <laughs> Where you got, you put two, or they call it the compliment sandwich. Sorry. You put two compliments around, you know, the the negative thing that you need to. (laughs) um, So I don't do that exactly, but she'll do that when she's actually, you know,
1: counseling people. So (laughs) she calls that the compliment sandwich, and then she calls your story the shit sandwich. I
2: I think that's why you were
1: getting confused.
3: (laughs) Here's, a, um, here's another shit sandwich for you, honey. Just <laughs> try to find a couple compliments to wrap it in.
0: Didn't I have this for lunch yesterday? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> honey, I love you.
2: <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, uh, speaking of the titles, though, like you know, what uh, my my actual dream, like uh, table of contents in terms of, like, the titles would have been, like, if it was actually exclusively, uh, the terms from video games, like, if everybody could have come up with a, a story title that would work in that context, because, like, I, I thought that would have been just so cool. I mean, I think it it works very well as it is. I mean, we were, we just sort of sprinkled them in throughout, and, like, because some of the story titles, they're just relevant to the story, and they don't mean anything really outside the context of the story, uh, but, like, um, but I was just like, you know, like, if it was just like a list of, of, video game terms, like, that would have been so cool. Um, and there, but there are a couple that I, I, I kind of regret that we, need, we didn't get to take advantage of. Um, and so, like, one of them is your princess is in another castle. Um, like, I would have, like, I really wanted a story called that, and somebody was gonna do it, but then she had to drop out. Um, and, uh, and there's a couple other ones that I just really liked, like, uh, I would have loved to see one called, like, Boss Only Stage or, like, PvP. Um, and so, uh, so nobody wrote stories that that could be called that, but, um... Well, well, John,
0: you just, just save it for the next anthology.
2: Yeah, no, I know. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll do well enough, um, that we can do another one. I mean, it'd be great to do more of these. As we've demonstrated on this panel, there's so few, um, you know, books about this in, in, the you know, the world of literature
4: that it's, you know, we need more. Uh, A good one would be All Your Base Belonged to
1: Us. (laughs)
4: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, John, I I thought your introduction for this book was really good. I I had forgotten the thing about you almost getting shot. Uh, (laughs) You want to just relate some of the things you talked about in the introduction?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. And so, I mean, the thing that, uh, Dave's talking about there about almost getting shot. Um, so when, like one summer, um, I was, uh, basically just playing video games like the whole summer and, uh, what I lived out in the middle of nowhere, but there was a house, uh, like a, a lot away. And, um, my stupid neighbor decided like he, he got this 22 rifle and he went up on the roof with his buddy and he just decided to start shooting things, you know? And so they're just like screwing around. Like they didn't, they weren't trying to kill things or anything. They were just you know, screwing around. But, um, so his buddy says, Oh, Hey, shoot the top of John's house over there. And so like he does. And like he's, his buddy meant like the roof or something, which I mean, still stupid, but I mean, um, but so he shot the house and it actually went through the outside wall, through a whole room and, and embedded in the wall opposite, like our family room, which is where the, the computer was. And so, like, if I had actually gotten up at a reasonable hour, there's a very good chance that I would have been sitting there playing a game, and I could have been killed. Wow, I mean, that is scary. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, honestly, like, I don't know if the bullet would have had enough, um, you know, like, power to actually have killed me at that point because it already had gone through a couple walls. But, um, you know, who and that's knows? A I mean, twenty-two.
4: I mean, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, it probably wouldn't have felt good, that's for sure. But, um, <laughs> uh but yeah, so I mean, it's just kind of crazy. Um and so, um, you know, and I don't, I don't remember everything that I, I put in the, in the intro, but I mean, you know, I sort of talk about some of the games that were um, important to me um, as a kid and everything. And, like, uh, uh, you know, I started off with, like, a VIC-20. Um, and, of course, I had an Atari 20, 2600 and, um, you know, playing Zork on my sister's TRS-80. and.
1: Well, John, also talk about how you owe your entire career to Wasteland's.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the original game Wasteland, uh, came out in, uh, the 80s. And, um, so, uh, you know, that started my lifelong, um, you know, interest in post-apocalyptic fiction. And, uh, and the first anthology I did was a post-apocalyptic anthology, which I called Wastelands with, with an S. So it's like I, I, I borrowed the title as, as we say and made it plural. So, uh, but, uh, and, and of course, when I did Wastelands, I didn't think anyone was ever going to make another Wasteland game. And then here we are, you know, uh, last year they made, uh, you know, made Wasteland 2, um, which Chris worked on. So uh, it all comes full circle.
0: I'll say, John, like, I, I'm right there with you. Like, Wasteland was also one of my inspirations. The, the 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 way they would set up the game for people who haven't played it is they actually, um, it, it's sort of like a very uh, old school RPG style. What they do is, uh, as, as you're adventuring through the world, They'll actually ask you to read like paragraph three or paragraph seven. And there's actually like a little book that comes with it that tells a bunch of different, more like in-depth narration of what's actually going on. That was the first time I'd seen an integration of sort of like a a, a story time element along with a much more, I guess, primitive, uh, you know, portrayal of a world. But yeah, Wasteland was uh, had a lot of brilliant stuff in it. It was really great.
3: Did you guys ever play? Uh, speaking of post-apocalyptic games, any BBS games? Because I used to be in high school, so addicted to Land of Devastation. Uh, anybody play that?
0: Uh, I did. My roommate, however, would have the same addiction, and uh, that's one reason I never fired one up because I saw <laughs> how how all-consuming that was. was. Was that the case for you?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a competitive game. You were against other human beings, and it was back in the days of dial-up, so you had one hour a day that you could play. And if you called and the phone was busy, you know it was like some other guy you were trying to kill was in the <laughs> was was there playing and and what was kind of fun about the game was that whenever your were your hour was just about up, you would retreat to your castle or whatever you or if you were out in the middle of the wasteland, you know you would just try to hide uh because you knew that your competitor would be logging in and trying to hunt you down and and kill your ass you know <laughs> um. <laughs> But it was kind of fun to build your own little castle and then sort of go to tuck your character in and say, gee, I hope I see you tomorrow. And, you know, the other (laughs) guy doesn't figure out where my castle's at and how to destroy it.
2: Uh, That just reminded me. So uh, there's this television show called Halt and Catch Fire. Um, And so, like, the first season is actually about, like, sort of the computer revolution in the 80s. And, like, it's about, like, them cloning the first IBM PC and and having to reverse engineer it and all that. But then the second season actually gets into early online gaming. um, And so... uh, I've only I've only watched about half of this the season so far, but I mean it's like they haven't quite gotten into like BBS games per se, but I mean they are doing like sort of uh it's like a text adventure game, like with early sort of online, sort of like CompuServe uh uh sort of online connectivity back in the day. Um but then uh so I, I just thought that was interesting to mention. It's like that's another um you know, portrayal of video games in, in, uh, fictional narratives. Although I'd be actually very curious to hear what, um, Mickey and, um, and Chris think about, uh, the portrayals that they've seen the show. Like, I mean, what they know about the history of early computing and all that.
4: I have not watched it. It sounds really cool. It sounds like something to, uh, to check out.
0: Uh, I was going to defer to Mickey because (laughs) I, I actually have the the, the Blu-ray in my bedroom right now, but uh, I I haven't actually, I actually was going to watch it for more, uh, more wasteland research because of the whole '80s angle. Because you know, waste, wasteland basically got nuked in the '80s, so getting a refresher course from shows like that is sometimes really helpful. But no, I haven't seen it yet. But it's encouraging that they have those elements because that's what I was hoping for to to watch it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Um, I mean, it's a, and it's an AMC show, so it's you know very well done, very highly produced.
1: All right, well, Chris, Chris, why don't you tell us a bit more about your story from press start to play? You said it was inspired by this Infocom game, The Lurking Horror.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, like Mickey, like I'm a big fan of uh, adventure games, and uh, Lurking Horror was the first uh, sort of text-based adventure game uh, horror game I played, and uh, it left quite a mark. Like I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it. It terrified me, and then uh, I, I I caught myself thinking about it a lot as the years went on, and then um, uh, and because I, I sort of have um, this disability that most game designers do, where they look at any situation, they try and break it down to game mechanics and stats. And I was like, well, what if there's someone who's like, uh, psychologically broken, and then all he sees in the real world is simple text commands for how to perform even the most basic actions. And that's, you know, how he sees the world. And I thought that might be an interesting thing to explore, as well as what may have led someone to that state to to want to break down the world so simplistically.
1: And then uh, Mickey, do you want to give a little uh, summary of your story? Yeah,
4: my story, what was fascinating to me was, uh, to explore if, you know, you have somebody who's playing a first person shooter and put them in a situation where they might be one of the best first person shooter players out there and they're completely confident and full of themselves and, and awesome. And then put them in a situation where they're in a real life situation where they're forced to make some of those decisions and, and be afraid for their life. And, uh, and actually pull a trigger and, and what that would mean and what the differences would be, uh, when you pull a trigger in a video game as opposed to, you know, having a a flesh and blood person in front of you. So that was kind of the starting point for it. And then I, uh, ripped off the plot to Die Hard (laughs) (laughs) and used that as the, as the structure. But I had a lot of fun with it. It's, it's a fun story and, uh, and it has some twists and turns in there. And then, of course, the other theme to the story is, um, if you are a person who, who is in a situation where you have to, if you're a soldier or something like that, and you have to pull the trigger, uh, what do you feel when that happens? And, and what does that mean? And, and there are people out there who can pull a trigger and not feel anything. And so that's really the kind of the theme that it's, it's wrapped around. But the, the main character in the beginning is, uh, learning how to, do computer artwork on his friend's computer. His friend works at the video game company, and that actually came from my own uh, history. That's how I started at Blizzard. A guy named Sam Wise, who is uh, one of the the main art guys at Blizzard, has been there for 20-some-odd years, uh, I learned art, which is where I started, uh, on his computer late at night, just kind of hanging out, borrowing time on his computer.
1: And was it similar to the story where a security guard might catch you when you would get in trouble? Or anything
4: like <laughs> I don't even think we had. So at that time, uh, Blizzard was Silicon and Synapse, and it was about 10 people. So I don't even think there was a security guard around. It was it was just, you know, we had this tiny little office space in the office building. Uh, but, but there were other people who were, you know, uh, would spend the night there. We had a guy who would walk around in his kimono. He was, yeah, he just he slept there. That that was his apartment.
1: And do you think that playing first-person shooters has prepared you in any way for uh, dangerous situations that you might find yourself in?
4: Well, I was in the army, um, and so so right out of high school, I went to uh, boot camp, and I went to uh, Operation uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And so there was, there was certainly a little bit of, it wasn't first person shooters at that point, but, um, you know, video games and reflexes and things like that and, and thinking about, okay, the differences between killing somebody in a, in a virtual setting and, and being forced into a situation where you might have to defend yourself or others. So there was, there was certainly, you know, uh, part of that uh, thought process.
1: That's good, because I wouldn't want to think that my five years spent doing nothing but playing Doom was for nothing. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. And then, so Daniel, tell us about your story, God Mode.
3: Sure. So, yeah, the t- the title of my story is God Mode. And, you know, uh, growing up, I in high school, I got really into programming. And, you know, I used to make my own text adventure games. And I spent a lot of time trying to make video games. And then I did the computer science degree, which only led to more attempts to make video games and over time eventually i strayed into artificial intelligence and that's how i kind of got knocked out of that trajectory toward video games but i spent a lot of time kind of building these virtual worlds and you realize that if you don't render it it's not real you know and and thinking about that concept of rendering the world in order to make it real you know is something that i was playing with thematically um you know some physicists think that if we don't witness the world then it just sort of sits there in a in an unknown state you know until we literally uh experience it and and essentially our brains are rendering the world into our minds you know at, at every moment so god mode is about a kid who who meets a girl he's a he's making video games he's uh, studying abroad in australia they're both young and beautiful and they've, they're falling in love. And um, then the stars disappear. And it's completely impossible for this to happen, obviously. So there are lots of sort of scientific explanations about what could have happened. And then um, they stop hearing from uh, America and other continents and large pieces of the world are just kind of fracturing and, and disappearing into nothing, you know, so maybe there's a little never ending story <laughs> uh, going on here. But what what the protagonist realizes is that um the the things that his girlfriend remembers most including him uh, are the things that are hanging around and everything else is basically turning unrendered and he's trying to basically figure out what's happening to the world whether he's a figment of her imagination or or whether she's a figment of his and ultimately there's a a pretty satisfying twist at the end um that brings us all together and you you come to understand what's happened and there's kind of a, I don't know, I think there's a bit of a beauty to it, to the way that it's ending. Um, also, it's partially inspired by just my terrible memory <laughs> <laughs> and my underlying fear that I'm just going to like forget all this shit. I mean, at some point when you're young, you think, okay, I'm going to like... uh I'm going to collect experiences of the world. You know, for me it was, I would read books and I'd throw the book against the wall and I'd say like, it's in the vault, you know, like <laughs> I read it, I know it. And as you get older, you realize, nope, we're all goldfish. We're like, yeah. <laughs> we're just like pulling in experiences and keeping some tiny fucking piece of it. And it's maybe stuck somewhere to your soul where you're not, it's not even a part of your real memory. Um And the vast majority of everything we experience is just a waterfall going right over the edge. And Realizing that, you know, uh, I mean, that was a little bit of the realization that went into this as well.
1: Is this story autobiographical at all,
3: Daniel? Uh, you know, I did study abroad in Australia. I did fall in love with a beautiful girl there. Uh, so you know, like any story, I'm plucking bits and pieces of it, uh, out of my history. And it's also a story that I, I, I you know, the idea for this short story hit me whenever I was in high school. Uh, it was a very different version of this story. But the germ of it, the idea, you know, I think every high school, every teenager flirts with solipsism, the the notion that maybe you're just imagining the whole world uh, and nobody else really exists. I mean, it's the ultimate narcissistic sort of thought process and it's very fitting that it hits us mostly when we're about 18. Um, So, you know, it came from that and I'd been kind of toying with the idea for a while. And that's why I love these anthologies because you get thrown, you know, uh uh, like a toy store to play in like in this time it's video games and then it really helps sharpen and focus your uh any type of vague ideas you might have into something that you can write
1: i guess i just want to mention too that my short story save me please is in this book and i'll just mention i i I got the idea to write it i was uh, in grad school i was i belonged to a sort of a campus club and there was a woman i met and she told me about how her she had started playing world of warcraft because her boyfriend, she said, was so addicted to World of Warcraft that the only way that she could interact with him anymore was if she logged into the game and appeared as a character in the game world, and that's the only way they could like spend time together. And that really struck me, and so I, I sort of started Googling that, and I found a, a website called GamerWidow.com, where it was all these women sharing stories about that. And I just thought that was such a striking phenomenon. I just read through dozens and dozens of accounts like that, and that helped inspire my story. And actually, my all-time favorite piece of fan mail I got was from someone from France who said, actually, you know, I, I put a button on my website that people could send me money if they like my writing. And only one person has ever sent me money through that website. And it was this this young woman from France, a college student, I think. And she said that one of her friends had been addicted to World of Warcraft and had been like disappearing, you know, socially and, you know, failing his classes and stuff. And that she had him read my story and that kind of snapped him out of it and allowed him to achieve a better... Balance between gaming and other priorities in his life. So, so that's my story. Save me, please. So, uh, it's in the book as well. Um, but John, why don't you tell us? You mentioned uh, other people in the game industry are in this book. Who, just say a bit more about who else is in the book, particularly people in the game industry.
2: uh yeah. So let's see. Otherwise, in the game industry, uh, well, there's Rihanna Pratchett, who um, you know, daughter of Terry Pratchett, but also she has worked on Tomb Raider and some other games, and she's also been Doing uh, comic book work as well. Um, I think. Uh, oh, and then Austin Grossman's in the book, and uh, so of course he's a he's a game developer as well. Um, I think those are the only other two people who are game developers. Also,
0: Austin has the uh, the best uh, story title, I think, of the short stories in the book. I, I think it's like the uh, what the Fresh Prince of Gamma World.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was
0: like, that's perfect.
2: Yeah, no, I love that. Um. Oh, I skipped Mark Laidlaw. Mark Laidlaw is obviously also in the game industry. He works at Valve. Um, but uh, you know, Chris Chloe's in the book and you know, so he's uh the outspoken uh former punter who has become um you know, sort of a uh commentator about gay rights issues and such and uh but also uh I mean his his, his Twitter handle is Chris Warcraft, so um obviously he's heavily into games. Ah, uh, yeah, and two of the other like sort of huge names that are in the book that we didn't mention are Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, and Hugh Howey, who um, you know, who wrote Wool and and other things, and, and also I collaborated with on the Apocalypse Triptych. But they actually have the last two stories in the book, so obviously we thought pretty highly of those. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't think that they, I don't know that they had any particular gamer connection. Uh, but it, they both seemed like sort of like uh, you know, like reasonable well, I think, enough to ask. I
3: think the deal with Andy's story. Was t Warrior was that it was so foul that another <laughs> publication had uh, declined to publish it. And when I the instant I read it, it's just a quick story, but it puts such a big grin on my face. I was like, yes,
2: yeah. You know, it's a it's a really inventive uh, story, like and really plays with the the whole notion of how we game. Uh, you know, and so like I thought I thought it was really interesting at what it does.
4: Andy worked at Lizard for a little while.
2: Oh, did he? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. Well, that
4: explains
1: things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So I think that's pretty much all the time we have. I also just wanted to mention we had two listeners suggested uh, video game related books people should read that I'm, I'm not familiar with them. But uh, Gerald Hines says that Connor Costik's Epic has a society organized according to skill at MMORPGs, and mm-hmm. Nicolette Stewart says uh, recommends Flex by Ferret Steinmetz. So check those out.
2: Yeah, I actually looked that one up because uh, I, I was I didn't know that that was about video games. It didn't seem like it was about video games, but maybe it is, and it just didn't say so in the description.
3: Hey, you know, I wanted to mention also. Sorry, not like to plug too hard, but <laughs> I actually made a video game recently that came out this year uh, for iOS called Mayday Deep Space, which totally plays with the idea of using speech recognition to interact with a uh, with a non-player character that's you know in some situation, and uh, it's it's almost like in the Matrix when Morpheus is guiding Neo through those cubicles. Um, anyway, that came out in January. I would love to hear what you guys actually think about it. Let me know if you want a pass for it.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Anyone who wants to send us free stuff, uh, we're always uh, <laughs> always happy to take it.
2: Actually, I was just going to mention, though, there's also this new zine called Sub-Q. So it's it's sub-q.com, and they're doing, like, uh, interactive fiction, which is essentially a game, so... Uh, it's, uh, I haven't messed around with it too much yet. It's like, it literally just launched, um, like August 4th. So it's only been around for a short while, but, um, they, you know, they've, they've got some stories by people who authors who have published, uh, including, uh, Vadra Chandra, Sakara. Um, so, um, you know, it looks interesting, but, um, you know, like I said, I haven't checked it out, but people might want to investigate.
1: I also forgot to mention, you know, earlier I mentioned Salman Rushdie, and I would really like to interview Salman Rushdie, but we have not been having any luck setting that up. <laughs> so if anyone listening has any, you know, knows Salman Rushdie and can, uh, you know, put in a good word for us, please, I'd would, would really appreciate that. Uh, okay, so how about just to wrap things up, uh, Chris and Mickey, uh, do you guys just, is there anything else you want to plug, anything else you're working on that you want to let people know about? So, uh, Mickey, uh, is there anything else you just want to mention?
4: Yeah, I've got I've got a dozen projects I'm working on. Um uh, working on a, a werewolf horror novel right now. That's out to publishers. Uh a uh graphic novel that's a, a noir graphic novel. And um and a movie, a uh kind of an eighties throwback uh vampire comedy, which it looks like we are very, very close to funding and actually being able to uh, start filming, so I'm very excited about that.
1: That sounds awesome.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. All
1: right, great. And Chris, you want anything you want to mention?
0: Um, I'm working uh, with an exile on uh, the, six, the sort of spiritual successor to Planescape Torment. It's uh, called Torment Tides of Numenera, and it uses uh, Monty Cook and Shannon Germain's uh, Numenera setting for the basis of a sort of torment-like experience. So the, the whole premise of Numenera is it's, it takes the idea that, you know, science advanced to such a point, it's almost indistinguishable from magic. But then they did that nine times in this world, so you're exploring all this wreckage of all these other civilizations. And it's a, it's a pretty rich setting for, uh, for telling a torment-like story. Um, I'm also wrapping up the, uh, the Wasteland 2 uh, novel. And the only reason I bring that up, aside from the Wasteland mentions, is because as soon as John started talking about the TRS-80, uh, yeah. one of the characters almost like starts the novel in a cult compound of people that worship the TRS-80. <laughs> and uh, I went through like all the old manuals and the coding premises, and I tried to use that. For ways they organize their like, uh, cult compound society in terms of subroutines and like, you know, uh, the dangers of like garbage in, garbage out, like all this stuff, it was, <laughs> which was a lot of a blast, but it really took me back to the 80s too. So that was, that was a lot of fun to do. But yeah, no,
1: uh, life's going good and that's pretty much about it. And John, yeah, if anything you want to mention,
2: uh, well, I actually have a couple of different things coming out over the next couple months besides Press Start to Play, which comes out August 18th. Um, and you can learn more at, johnjosephadams.com slash press dash start. I also have in September Loosed Upon the World, which is a climate fiction anthology that comes out um, September 15th. And then uh, on October 6th, uh, the first volume of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy comes out, which I co-edited with Joe Hill.
1: All right, great. And Daniel, anything you want to mention?
3: Sure, yeah. um, You know, obviously I would love for everybody to check out Press Start to Play. Um, I have a I'm writing Earth Two Society series for DC Comics, which comes out every month and it's very fun. I'm building a new world (laughs) in a binary star system, which totally messes with my Kryptonians. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and I have a graphic novel from DC coming out in January called Quarantine Zone. Uh, And then yeah, just Mayday
1: Deep Space is on iOS. All right, great. Well, that all sounds awesome. And I think we're all out of time, so I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So, we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Daniel H. Wilson, Chris Avalone, and Mickey Nielsen. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Had a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for having us. And that was our panel. So, big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Daniel H. Wilson, Chris Avalone, and Mickey Nielsen for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Stu Lawson in Australia, who writes Entertaining and educational. Consistently good content and topics. A truly fun, fascinating, and enjoyable podcast. Highly recommended if you're at all interested in sci-fi or pop culture. Please keep up the great work, guys, and continue to make it so. So, huge thanks again to Stu Lawson for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to Lachlan Adams and Jessen Lopez, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.